2: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the two authors of Rivalry and Reform, Presidents, Social Movements, and the Transformation of American Politics. The book was published this year by University of Chicago Press. The two authors are Sidney Milkis and Daniel Tichner. Sid, are you there still? I am indeed. Good. And, and Dan, yourself, you're also there as well. I am. Good. I uh, said so maybe we can just invite you before we talk about this really interesting book, just to introduce yourself. Anything you would like to share?
0: Sure. I'll be uh, brief. Uh, I teach at the University of Virginia. Um, I'm in the Department of Politics. I also have. I'm a faculty associate uh, at the Miller Center of, of Public uh, Affairs. And the most important thing to know about me, Heath, is I'm from Philadelphia.
2: Uh, wonderful. Good. And, but, but you're no longer in Philadelphia. And Dan, yourself, you are not an East Coast person right now. Maybe you can just introduce yourself as well.
1: Sure. Um, actually, I, but I'm from New York. So that's, you know, you have a Philly boy and a New York boy. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: Reggie, Northeasterners. up on this.
1: <laughs> Minor miracle, um, especially after them signing Bryce Harper. Um, so um, I'm a political scientist. Um, and I'm um, also affiliated with the Wayne Moore Center for Law and Politics. Um, and uh, do work on immigration and the presidency and social movements. Yeah, wonderful. Um, A really, really interesting book. Uh, At the start
2: of the book, uh, you write about one of the ironies of such interest in in major political change in a system of government that is designed to stifle change and, and innovation. Uh, you also write that there's been relatively little on the written on the intersection between the presidency and social movements—not zero, but but relatively little, especially in political science. So, Sid, to start us off, what do you attribute this? Um, why hasn't your book been written before? Uh, I, I think there's this uh, unfortunate uh, tendency,
0: uh, Heath, for uh, political scientists to uh, to specialize too much. Uh, and so, and this is uh, always, perhaps always an old problem, but I think it's gotten uh, more acute uh, recently uh, when there's so much attention to things like like methods and honing in on uh, specialized topics. And so there's tons of work on the presidency and tons of work on, on social movements. Uh, uh, and, and those works are, are, are or uh, shed important light on things, but as Dan and I like to say, uh, they're, um, they're not wrong, but they're radically incomplete. Uh, and uh, it, it's uh, very hard, for. and Dan and I sort of recognize this independently, which is, even though we're really close friends, we recognize independently that it's very hard to explain change in American politics if you don't have both of these uh, important actors, presidents, and social movements for all their their differences are both kind of the most disruptive forces in, in American politics, most challenge uh, constitutional norms and, insti- and institutions. So uh, I think the other thing, and then I'll turn it over to Dan if he wants to add anything, is Heath, is that uh, this, there's also disciplinary differences in here again. The, the parchment barriers between disciplines drives me crazy at, at a big public university like University of Virginia. We all have, we each have our own hall and and so forth. And sociology tends to pay a lot of attention to social movements, political science to presidents, but, uh, cross-fertilization is not as great as it could be.
1: And Dan, do you want to add anything? Yeah, no, I think that sums it up really well. And I think within our discipline, we also have our different silos. So, you know, um, those who study institutions, um, particularly like the presidency, um, you know, may not stray as much into kind of thinking about, um, you know, outside of that box. And I think likewise, a lot of the social movement literature um, in our discipline ends up, you know, being studied in other subfields, you know, rather, you know, um, in terms of you know, racial and ethnic politics, LGBTQ um, politics, environmental stuff, and so forth. And, and it's not that we haven't had some great political scientists who've dug into this, you know, we stand on the shoulders of some, of some terrific folks, you know. Um, you know, including Bruce Miroff and a host of others who, um, you know, were really helpful as we developed this project. Um, But I think that's true. And then, you know, it it also strikes me that, um, you know, how well-developed social movement research is in sociology and, um, you know, has obviously a lot of strong um, influence in political science too. And amazing scholars in that area. But again, in the presidency field, you know, um, We'd probably, you know, quantify it like, you know, something like ten or fifteen percent of folks really think about movements.
2: Yeah, and uh, Dan, you theorize in the book that there are four important types of of movements when it when it comes to your your study: uh, formative, institutionalized, uh, militant, and marginal. Uh, what are the factors uh, that place a movement into one of these
1: categories? So we really, um, in doing this, um, we're kind of talking about these different types of movements. Um, we're thinking about two main things. One is first thinking about um, what kind of conventional political leverage a movement has. Um, does it have significant conventional uh, political leverage? Is it you know, uh, more insignificant uh, ability to engage in mainstream politics? And the second variable we we're thinking about is um, what kind of disruption or lack thereof Uh, Do they pose? Do they significantly challenge the social, economic, political order or not? And so it's from that where we, you know, develop kind of a two by two on this. But one thing to really emphasize about that is um, we create these, you know, this this two by two as a way to kind of um, map out the world of social movements and their interactions with mainstream politics and the presidency. But we also develop it to capture the limitations of that kind of approach as well, because we spend a lot of time in the book focusing on long social movements. We know about the long civil rights movement, but we also talk about uh, a long religious right and so forth. And so the quick punchline on that is, is um, if one freezes time, they might put a movement as a particular type um, uh, in in terms of this two by two. But in fact, what we do by looking at the long durée have ability to see how movements even specific movements have the capacity to move um, into different quadrants over time.
2: Now, now, Sid, as, as Dan sort of is is alluding to, you you illustrate this this theory with a series of cases, and and these are uh, these are in depth, um, uh, long cases. For the sake of brevity, I wanted to stick to the twentieth century uh, because the int- the writing about the, the previous century is, is interesting, but uh, in the interest of time. Uh, you focus in chapter three on the first half of the century and the relationship between the civil rights movement and the presidency. I wonder what what explains this—the lack of partnership between Roosevelt and Wilson and the nascent civil rights movement—that is the, the the early part of the the long civil civil rights movement.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's it's a, that's a great question, Heath. I, I think um, the. It, it goes it, it relates to uh, the particular um, uh, strengths or um, ambitions of, the, of, the, of presidents and, and social movements. Uh, presidents, uh, although many of them want change, want to do so in a way that doesn't uh, um, um, totally dis- disrupt the existing uh, order of things. They tend to be pragmatic. they want to build a, a consensus. And social movements uh, um, are really, uh, as they share some presidents, some presidents' desire for change, uh, are not particularly concerned about uh, constitutional and norms and, and, and institutions and don't like hearing about patience, and don't want, want to hear about how we have to build a consensus. And, and no move, no issue is more fraught in American politics than, than race racial justice it's just as um, class is a, is a is really the fault line of your a lot of European political systems so race is, is certainly uh, uh, the fault line the original sin of American politics. so presidents uh, even as they grow stronger and become more ambitious with the development of the modern presidency uh, are uh, fi- are really reluctant to form strong alliances. Uh, with civil rights activists um, who really become important with the founding of the uh, NAACP in 1909, with William Du Bois being the vanguard uh, of that, because they so fear it as an explosive issue, an issue that's going to tear apart their party, that's going to undermine the consensus they need, they feel they need uh, to govern.
2: Now, Dan, this this changes uh, by the nineteen fifties and sixties. Sort of famously, you, you label this uh, the civil rights movement during this time period as formative. What changes in in either the the tactics or the political leverage to cement this connection between Johnson and the civil rights movement?
1: Um, I mean, it, a lot of this is kind of relying on sort of classical treatments, along with our our, our own archival research. And, you know, it's it's really, you know, an emphasis on um, the ability to um, have both a radical front flank um, that's extremely disruptive as well as um, uh, uh, kind of strong mainstream components. Um, uh, so the answer your specific question, um, it, it really is kind of um, emphasizing the ability to, to press um, uh, in the courts uh, in terms of uh, electoral politics, um, direct lobbying of the presidency, having allies in Congress, um, but then also obviously having this really um, significant capacity um, in terms of um, protest um, on the streets to make this graphically available.
2: So you label the, the new Christian right as an institutionalized movement. Uh, now, we typically think of the Christian right and, and Ronald Reagan of the 1970s and 1980s, but you you track the development of the movement and its connection to the presidency much further back. Uh, so how does this movement first develop in the 1940s and 50s, and what changes in the 1960s and 70s to institutionalize the movement?
0: Yeah, well, in, in the 40s and the 50s, it's focused a very... Uh, of uh, very much on on the New Deal, uh, and the expansion of the state, uh, and the threat uh, that uh, early uh, Christian right leaders feel uh, that that poses uh, to um, uh, to uh, f- faith in America, and they're particularly concerned about how the New New Deal, in their eyes, resembles socialism, or even is, a, is the beginning of a path toward godless communism. Uh, by the um, uh, in the 1960s, I think uh, what r- really one of the really a- of animating factors uh, uh, that, that drives the uh, Christian right um, to really become more aggressive than than the Christian right in the uh, in the 40s and 50s is the emergence of the civil rights movement, uh, the, the push for racial justice uh, in many arenas of American politics, and the one that bothers uh, many leaders uh, of the Christian right in particular is the push for uh, desegregation of the schools. Uh, and in the seventies uh, there, there was uh, there were efforts beginning with Nixon, but uh, also continuing into the Carter administration uh, to deprive uh, academies that were set up to avoid uh, civil rights action, the so-called segregation academies or academies of their, um, of their t- uh, tax, uh, benefits being treated as non uh, nonprofits, and, and and the IRS begins to uh, take that away from them. And, and I, I, a lot of people look to uh, the abortion issue and Roe v. Wade as the kind of, uh, of founding um, event uh, of, of the uh, Christian right. And of course, that's very important. But in our research, Dan and I have traced uh, the, what, what Dan, Dan really called the new Christian right to the civil rights battles and, and the way that was waged, uh, between, um, Christian right activists, many of whom of course were in the South, uh, and, and, um, uh, activists and members of the government who were, who were intent upon advancing uh, civil rights justice.
1: No, no. And, and Keith, I just want to yeah, please. also kind of amplify what Sue was saying on that. You know, when we were going to the, um, to look at the follow papers, um, at Liberty University and other archival material, Paul Raybridge's papers um, in Wyoming and elsewhere, you know, we thought that we were shifting from, you know, a real focus on race and civil rights with the long civil rights movement to seeing how religion was playing out. And it was really remarkable to us just how often race was at the impetus of a lot of the early um, um, kind of new Christian right activism um, of the 60s and 70s. So I just kind of really want to underscore what Sid was saying in that regard. Um, but it just stood out so dramatically, especially, you know, and there are other causes, the textbook battles as, and, and the struggles over um, abortion and other things, um, school prayer. But that really seemed to be at the heart of its origins. And so when we thought we were investigating religion, we were still still investigating race in American politics in significant ways. Now,
2: this seems to explain the social movement, but not its connection to the the presidency and its institutionalization. So what is the link? The number of the issues you've just described are the most local of local issues. I'm mean, textbook choice um, local Mm -hmm. educational zoning. Uh, these are the, the politics of, of mayor's races, uh, not of the presidency. (laughs) So what explains the glue here to, to bind the new Christian right, uh, to, to Ronald Reagan?
1: Um, so, you know, I think the most compelling part of this is, is that there's a shift to, um, uh, emphasis on elections and, and party building, and so there's a really interesting kind of compelling um, element of the story that takes place in the late 70s when you have new right political activists from um, Washington, D.C., like Paul Weyrich and others um, who um, are looking at this uh, a, a grievance politics taking place um, around religion in the right, in the South, and trying to find a way to um, kind of capture it, um, draw it to, um, to a conservative, um, a successful conservative, um, majority coalition in terms of national elections at the presidential level. And so obviously, you can, um, the familiar story about, you know, the, um, the seeds of discontent during the Carter administration between, um, the, the uh, evangelical conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists in the Carter administration. And it's during that period where you start to see these alliances forming between the Jerry Falwells of the world and, um, key, uh, conservative political organizers in DC. And eventually there's a connection that's made very profoundly with the Reagan campaign. And we get into the book into a kind of a long account of the various candidates that the Christian right, um, considers, um, and the courting of the Christian right by these various candidates, but it's Reagan who's the one who really resonates um, with them. And once that once that marriage takes place um, in, you know, the, the lead up of the 1980 uh, election, it's an extremely firm one that, um, you know, um, despite certain policy frustrations that might occur later, um, has a, um, a, a strong um, bond uh, throughout the Reagan years. Yeah, no,
0: I, I, I was just going to add uh, quickly, Heath, that um, um, that Reagan uh, recognized uh, that the Christian right could be a really critical part of a national conservative offensive. And remember, a lot of uh, the 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 transformation of liberalism in the nineteen sixties nationalized a lot of issues that you just rightly um, um, identified as uh, as local local issues. Um, but but in the 60s and the 70s, those issues, school, issues like s- with schools, for example, became much more n- national. And so conservatives felt they had to build a national movement. And Reagan and, of course, some of these strategists like Wirec, which Dan mentioned, recognized that the Christian right could be critical foot soldiers, uh, gra- uh, work, uh, could, could do work at the grassroots uh, to to uh, to enable. Uh, this national conservative movement, and as Dan said, uh, just as the Christian right wooed Reagan, Reagan <laughs> reciprocated. And there's this dramatic uh, episode in August of 1980, uh, where Reagan goes to a, a Christian right uh, uh, festival. Dan, should we call it <laughs> in, in, in Dallas? Yeah, uh, an annual meeting. Yeah. yeah, their annual meeting, and he and he says that uh, I know uh, that you uh, can't because it was officially nonpartisan. This meeting, he said, I know you can't. Uh, support me, uh, but I want you to know that I support you. And, and that was a critical moment uh, in the in the uh, merger of of the Reagan presidency and the Christian right. And it really transformed the Republican Party in important ways.
1: And and, and and on that specific thing, since we're getting into the weeds a little bit, what's really striking to kind of capture this alliance is that crucial phrase that, that Reagan uttered, um, you know, was actually pitched to him by a significant evangelist of the time, who picked him up at the airport on the way to their gathering, where a, you know a thousands gathered um, for their this event, in which uh, it was Paul Robeson um, who um, um, I'm sorry James Robeson sorry not Paul Robeson wrong 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 category James Robeson who uh, who pitches this to him and Reagan says that's great can I use it and he says yes and so it it captures the extent to which the leadership of the religious right wanted this to work so so there really was a symbiosis and we we may get into this a little later heath but what's really striking to Sid and i as we've you know looked at these various movements and their and their uneasy relationships with presidents over the time is the extent to which on the right um it ends up being less contentious oftentimes especially with reagan than you see on the left where um, there's much more of an epic struggle, um, even during times of, of the most strong, strongest partnership, um, it tends to be uh, much more thorny. Yeah, and, and
2: so you, you, uh, to this very point, you. While much of the book covers the early periods in U.S. history, you, you end the book uh, looking much more at our contemporary time period, and you classify the Tea Party as an institutionalized movement. But the Occupy movement, as marginal, somewhat to uh, to Dan's point, what can we take from your book to understand the more recent presidencies of Barack Obama and, and Donald Trump? Are they uh, forming the same types of connections in the same times of say, same types of ways, or it has the sort of polarization of our of our recent uh, political period? Change these relationships in some significant way.
0: Yeah, well, you know, this is uh, the last chapter, is is uh, is, is really a, both an attempt to wrap things up, Heath, but also a jumping off point for for Dan and me, uh, because we think that Barack Obama uh, and uh, Donald Trump's relationship with uh, with with social movements represents, uh, I don't know, Dan, how should we put it, like a, a, a culmination of the of this ongoing mating dance between presidents and, and and social movements that coming out of the 60s, both uh, the Democratic and the Republican Party uh, become heavily informed by movement politics. And, and this really begins to play out in the Obama and the Trump presidency. And, and, and you know, I, we may be wrong, Heath, but Dan and I, I'll just say this and let Dan elaborate if he wants. Dan and I sort of see... Um, Obama and Trump as the first presidents who really see themselves as leaders of a movement. Obama uh, and his followers always said he wasn't just a candidate for president. He was the head of a a movement uh, 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 that represented kind of the maturing of the great society. And Trump has been uh, even more explicit about this. Uh, um, And and, and so for much of the book, this relationship is fraught, and it still is. And and I think Dan is right to say it's mostly fraught on on the liberal side. For example, the relationship between Obama uh, and Black Lives Matter was very tense. Uh, But it's become really strongly institutionalized and it plays itself out in in party politics. And, And one of the things that makes partisanship so raw and disruptive now is the way presidents and social movements have become so closely connected.
2: And Dan, maybe just to wrap up, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is is the difference between looking at a movement as it's sort of happening and, and having the, the benefit to look back over a longer time period. Uh, when we look back at, at the Tea Party and, and Occupy in and, and decades from now, are we likely to view them in the same way or, or are these movements that are ongoing uh, and will be revisited on the, the eighth
1: volume of, of this book in, in 25 years? absolutely ongoing. And so I'm really glad that you, um, particularly on the, on, I was, I was going to jump in at a certain point and say, you know, the Occupy movement isn't per se marginal, isn't that, that, that wouldn't be our, our final verdict on it because it depends where you want to push, you know, pinpoint the start and stop date. And so, you know, if you, um, consider the Occupy movement as, you know, significantly in, in informing, the success of Bernie Sanders in the last election and breathing life into a certain kind of left politics, um, you know, it it has a much longer trajectory. Um, And just to underscore something that, um, that Sid was emphasizing, part of the story that we're telling here is really about um, the long development of, or kind of a, a developmental joining of executive prerogative Movement politics and party politics that takes place, you know, over the course of the last century. And so um, that's where um, Sid's capture what he was saying he was trying to emphasize the crystallizing of that with um, the Trump and Obama administrations. And what stands out to us yeah. is while those both um, envision themselves as movement presidents, um, the contention also carries on so that for Obama, Um, although he, you know, at the front end, wanted to harness those movements um, uh, under OFA and so forth, um, constantly there was a significant tension between he and immigrant rights groups, same-sex marriage activists, um, and uh, Black Lives Matter and a variety of other movements. um, and, And he had enormous frustration because he was hoping that he could be you know, someone who um, would easily conciliate all those forces. um, But in fact, uh, it was much more restive than he he had hoped for.
2: Yeah, the the book, uh, Rivalry and Reform, President's Social Movements and the Transformation of American Politics, you've been hearing from the two authors, Sid Milkus and Dan Titchener. Sid, thank you. Thank you, Heath. It was great to be with you. Yeah, and Dan, thank you as well. Thanks so
1: much, Heath.